May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. Roxanne's laughing at me already. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, Rich. I'm here with Roxanne Levine, the head of our immigration department. And we're going to talk today about H-1B visas and the upcoming filing period for fiscal year 2021, right? You got it right. All right. First question right out of the gate. What is an H-1B visa? Okay, Rich, thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited to be here and to talk about one of the most passionate visas that I'm I'm most passionate about in the immigration world. The H-1B visa is has been structured by Congress, introduced in 1965, for individuals being hired by U.S. companies to perform work in the U.S. requiring highly specialized and tech, sometimes technical, but professional knowledge. So generally, the person who would qualify for an H-1B visa would be somebody in possession of at least a U.S bachelor's degree or foreign equivalent of a U.S. bachelor's degree or higher. A college-educated person. College. has to be uh, college-level work. And you have to have a college-level degree, and the work you are engaged in for the U.S. company must also be considered college-level requirement. So if I have an MBA, which is even better than a BA, but I'm going to be working as a florist in a floral shop, I would not qualify for an H-1B. But if I was going to function as a general manager and I had a degree in business in that floral shop, I would qualify for an H-1B. All right. So these are then U.S. businesses who want to bring in people from other countries to perform relatively high-level positions. Correct. And what kind of U.S companies would ordinarily be the petitioners here? So any kind of U.S. company that you can dream up would likely sponsor foreign nationals for H-1Bs. Our law firm, for instance, could sponsor lawyers for H-1Bs, banks and financial institutions. Museums might hire curators. Schools might hire teachers. Restaurants might hire managers. Construction companies might hire you know, people who are in senior positions, any executive or managerial function, which might require a degree, that that company could hire an H-1B. All right. So we're not constrained by type of business or industry. It's broad in that regard. Correct. Uh, the, the requirement is just has to do with the level of work that the employee is going to be performing. Right. And the educational requirement or background for the job. Okay. Tell us a little more about how this is implemented by Congress. I I gather part of the issue here is there's not, there's not sort of a, an unending number of these visas granted. Okay. So that's a great question because the H-1B visa, when originally uh, crafted by Congress in 1965, was an unlimited visa. You could file for as many as you liked. And there was a very broad, I mean, there, there were definitions of H-1B. The definitions were very broad at the time, and there was no limit on the numbers. In the early 1990s, a lot of uh, U.S. companies, petitioners, were undercutting the U.S. labor market because they were hiring foreign nationals to work in professional positions, and they, 
they were paying them less than what they would pay an American worker. So Congress stepped in at that time and they said, that's great, guys. That's not happening anymore. We are now going to impose a cap on the number of H-1Bs you can file on an annual basis. That cap is 65000 annually for individuals with bachelor's degrees and another 20000 for individuals with at least a master's degree from a U.S. educational institution only. Is that 65,000 in the whole United States? That's correct. It's a very small number. Okay. 65 and 20. You're talking about 85,000. It's actually a carve out for about, I think it's about 7,500 from Singapore and Chile. They get separated out. Um, there used to be, the numbers were much higher in the late 90s, but the way Congress structured it was it was 195, it went up to 195,000 and then down to 85,000, and that has not changed. So there are 85,000 H-1B cap visas available on an annual basis. And the and the idea, I gather, is to balance the legitimate needs of businesses to recruit outside of the United States with the needs of employees in the U.S. to get jobs. Correct. Uh, That's part of the calculation. The other issue that that you should just know about is that there are also H-1Bs for cap-exempt companies. There are an unlimited number. Cap-exempt, meaning they don't have to worry about timing or filing periods, include educational institutions at the university level, institutions of research, some hospitals related to those institutions of research. So if you have a university professor, for instance, or an institution of research, we we deal with a lot of them in the D.C. area, they are cap-exempt. They don't have to worry about timely filing or the amount of numbers they're not restricted. And those seem to fall within sort of a public service kind of bucket, if I'm hearing you right? Uh, Yeah, education, public service, institutions of research. Okay. Uh, This is overseen by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, is that right? Correct. So the way you had asked earlier about how Congress structured it, and what they did was they allocated this function to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice oversees two agencies. Um, You may have heard of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. They are the enforcement arm for the Department of Justice in the immigration-related area. And U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, formerly the INS, Immigration Naturalization Service, that most people remember from the old days, but they switched and changed their name. USCIS administers benefits to individuals applying for entry to the United States for temporary work visas. The H is just one of like many, you know, the way it's all divided up is by letter. There's A through I think V right now on the non-immigrant visa categories, the temporary work visas, and um, they also administer immigrant visa processing, people coming to the U.S. on a permanent basis. So that's USCIS, and they are set up. Just interestingly enough, the way they operate is these applications, the H-1Bs, are filed at remote service centers around the country. There are four main centers, Vermont, Nebraska, Texas, and California. Traditionally, we've been filing our new H-1Bs in uh, Vermont and California. Extensions are filed in different locations. So it's always like a puzzle to figure out where am I filing? When am I filing it? How much am I filing with the application? Did they change the location? You know, it's always uh, fun and games figuring all that out. So with respect to the H-1B visa, what criteria does the USCIS use to review the applications? That's interesting because we talked a little bit about the 
qualifications for the beneficiary or the foreign national. The qualifications for, for him or her are that they possess at least a bachelor's degree or foreign equivalent, or it could be a higher level, or if they don't actually have a degree but they have extensive experience, that can be evaluated to be the equivalent of a degree. And the U.S. employer must employ the foreign national. They, there cannot be indirect employment. The, that petitioner can be a large company or a small company. We've done H-1Bs for companies with six or seven people. Uh, in truth, any company that has a complement of employees or a workforce of less than 20 will undergo more scrutiny than a large bank or something like this. So it could be any U.S. employer. And how long does the process take to apply and get granted a visa? Uh, so processing for the H-1B is now basically limited to a filing period because there's such a high demand for the visa. When the economy is great, there's a high demand. U.S. employers are willing to pay for foreign talent. When there's not high demand, then there might not necessarily be a filing period. The filing period starts April 1st each year and will continue in the first five days of April generally. If And then at the end of that fifth day, if there's a heavy demand, if the government calculates that by day five they've reached the cap of 85,000, they will say, "We stop now, don't file anymore, we will now conduct a lottery. This coming year, the government recently announced and confirmed in December of 19 that they would be introducing something called a pre-registration requirement so that between March 1st and March 20th, all employers are allowed to submit pre-registration, very simple, uh, seemingly simple application, online registration, USCIS will conduct a lottery based on the pre-registrations they received. Then they will announce who has been accepted that year for the annual cap, and they will then give a 90-day period from that point to actually file the supporting documents, the actual petition. The effect of that is that the deadline is a month earlier than in prior years? Correct. Okay. March 1st. All right. And then you get everything submitted in April and or 90 days thereafter? So the way that works is we file April 1st, April 2nd, April 3rd, whatever, and then we wait. And the last two, three, there is another process you can attach to your application called premium processing, a fast track request that you pay another $1,440 and USCIS will turn around your request in 15 calendar days. The last two or three years, they suspended that and they said, well, we'll let you know when you can premium process. So we were sort of left in the dark about premium processing and then they resumed it or said you could premium process in May or I think it was May last year. So whoever wanted to was allowed to premium process, but the actual employment cannot start until October 1st. So a U.S. company that wants to bring in somebody on one of these H-1B visas right now. They have to make an initial filing in March, a follow-up filing in April. Assuming their, their case is accepted in the lottery, yeah. And they still have to await a final determination. Correct. And until they get that final determination, they can't bring the person over. Correct. So many of the foreign nationals who use the H-1B and employers who avail themselves of the program hire foreign students who are graduating from U.S. colleges and universities. Those students have to have graduated. They have to have their degrees. And most of them are already on a period of optional practical training. 
So there's a year of that after you graduate. So if you graduate May or June of 2019, you're going to get a period of training until May or June 2020. And the U.S. government has introduced a special rule called H-1B cap gap for those kids. And if if their H-1B is accepted and pending, they're allowed to remain in the United States and work for that period of time it takes for USCIS to process. If an individual is overseas, then they, they have to wait until the H-1B is approved and they can go to an American consulate and apply for a visa after the initial approval by USCIS to enter the U.S. to start work in October. The start, you file in April, but the start date is October 1. So you, you really have to be forward thinking if you're a company. Using it's very it. tough for companies here to know who they're going to be hiring and that they will be willing to wait until October. So let's say you filed, you made it through the initial period and you're accepted and you get your visa effective October. Right. How long does it last? Visa, the H-1B visa is valid for three years. And it can be extended for another three years, total of six. There are special dispensation in certain circumstances to get recapture time. Any time you spend outside the United States in the sixth year, whether it's for vacation or for work, you're allowed to, quote, recapture and buy more time. And also, in certain circumstances, if you have on a parallel track a residence case pending and your country is backlogged under a per-country quota, and you are at a certain stage in residence, you can continue to get H-1B extensions of stay in three-year increments indefinitely until your green card is processed and granted. Are those extensions, is the, is the process the same that you have to submit in March and then... So the the extensions are filed, can be filed up to six months in advance of expiration of your petition. So it's not March. It could be, uh, let's say, August or September of that year. You get three years, you file. You're allowed to file extensions of stay up to six months in advance of expiration of the uh, visa petition. So <laughs> if you're here, let's say you're you're here working on an H-1B visa and you get fired, what happens? That's a great question. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. So uh, in 2017, you have a 60-day grace period to leave, or you can go from one employer to another during that H-1B grace period. So if I'm terminated on January 30th, I know I have until the end of March to either leave or find another H-1B employer who will pick me up. Right. And it has to be another H-1B uh, employer. You can't just go get any old job in the U.S. and you, stay. You certainly cannot do that, but you might qualify for a different type of visa. There are investor visas. There's religious worker visas. There are intercompany transfers. There are, a bunch, there are other options, but in general, 60-day grace period. Are there other alternatives to an H-1B visa if you file your case and for some reason it doesn't get approved in a particular year? So that's usually the big discussion after the H-1B cap cases and the numbers are used up. Uh, There are investor visas if you're from a certain country, Italy, Canada, Great Britain, Sweden, it goes on and on. Um, If you work for a company that is majority owned by a country with, with which you share nationality, if I'm a Canadian and I get a job with Royal RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, or if I'm British and I work for the Bank of England or I, you know, any British company, I could get an investor visa as a managerial or executive or essential skilled employee of those companies. There are NAFTA free trade agreement visas. 
if you are from Canada or Mexico. Requirements are similar to the H-1B, and you might qualify for the NAFTA visa. There are, uh, they're much more restricted than the H-1B, but the H-1B has become much more restricted in the last few years in terms of defining who is a professional, what occupation, and what qualifies you. So NAFTA also is another option. There's um, the L-1 transferee. Uh, there are uh, O visas for aliens of extraordinary ability, performers, entertainers, artists. Someone uh, might qualify for that. Or if you're really extraordinary, you could self-petition as somebody doing work of the national interest of the United States and get a green card. Extraordinary alien is green card holder. There are many other options that could be explored. Okay. And what is the interplay between the H-1B visa process and U.S. residents? It's an interesting interplay. It's what we play with every day in the office. How do we get everything matched up properly. And the way I view it and explain to my clients is I tell them, look, it's like a railroad track. On one side of the track, you have your non-immigrant status going on. It could be an H, an L, an O. And on the other side of the track, you have a green card case progressing. So even though you may have a green card case in process, that doesn't give you permission to live and work here. You've got to maintain the non-immigrant or temporary worker visa status while that's going on until you get well into, well along in your residence case, where you can abandon your temporary visa status and you will hop onto a resident process, which will give you separate permission to work and travel. Is six years sufficient if you do an H-1B visa and then you extend and you've been here six years and you're on a residence track? Is that, are you okay to stay now or do you have to keep getting extensions? So what you need to be very aware of as an H-1B visa holder is the six years is the maximum. And in most cases, it's best to start the residence process at least latest by the end of the, at least a year before the end of the fifth year so that you can remain here beyond that date. There are except, another exception to that. But most most individuals, most companies want to remain competitive. So a lot of the foreign nationals will come to the employer and say, look, please sponsor me for the H-1B, but at some point down the road, not far from now, I want to start a green card. And the green card process it can take anywhere from two to four years. Okay. Could you Tell us a little bit, Roxanne, about your what your practice is uh, in terms of immigration. So what we do is we represent U.S. companies, financial institutions, hedge funds, large chemical companies all around the company, uh, all around the country. We represent schools. We represent a lot of the uh, retail industry who bring in H-1B managers. And we also represent individuals who are applying for residence, green cards, based on family-based applications. And that sort of is a stream that falls out of the uh, employment-based immigration we do. We also file for citizenship. We work on relinquishment of citizenship, retaining green cards for people who live outside the United States. So really full, pretty it's, full service help. It, with it's full service on the employment and family side. We do not get involved in deportation, removal, asylum. I gotcha. All right. Well, that's great. And an interesting topic. We like to wrap up with a closing argument. Uh, what could a listener take away from this conversation on the H-1B visa? What's important to know right now? So I think what's important to know right now, today, 
If you're thinking about an H-1B, it's time to call a lawyer and get started. The filing period commences March 1st. It's moved up, as you said, a month to get your pre-registration in. That's not a lot of time. And there's a lot of documentation that both the employer, prospective employer, will need and that you will need to start gathering to get going on this process and hope everybody succeeds who applies. All right. So all the employees and the employers who are hoping to take advantage of this visa this year need to get on it. This is this is the time. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for telling us about it. My pleasure. It was great to be here. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief. Mm-hmm.